0: Oh, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I am so honored to be here. Mary and I are honored to be in uh, Anchorage and, and in Alaska and uh, to be here with you and to be here at, a, at Anchorage Grace Church. Uh, lots of things only become obvious, and you feel like kind of like an idiot when you all of a sudden realize that they're obvious. They didn't seem so obvious before. And uh, having, having never been to Alaska before, there are lots of things that just all of a sudden make sense that uh, didn't make sense until we come here. Uh, for one thing, uh, I understood that the days were long here in the summer, <laughs> but last night we went to, uh, to the point in Anchorage where there is that statue of, uh, of Cook, and uh, we, we saw the sunset at approximately midnight, <laughs> uh, which for two people from Florida... Uh, is just odd <laughs> and somewhat wondrous. And, uh, and, and not only that, but I, I was standing there and I realized, and uh, I've had the opportunity to study in some of the most illustrious institutions on the planet. Uh, uh, Time magazine made that designation for whatever it's worth. And, uh, and I, I, last night I was standing there looking out from Anchorage realizing, no, wait just a minute, this wasn't Anchorage. Uh, that's how it got its name. And that all of a sudden made sense. There are certain things that make sense just when you're looking at them, and the obvious becomes abundantly clear. And it is just an incredible place. And uh, last night we also, even after the service, just uh, devotionally drove down the coast just a little bit, just to see, again, the wonders of what God has, has made here and uh, that you get to enjoy quite regularly. The other day I came across the fact that... Uh, Young couple had taken their newborn baby for the first pediatric visit. And they, they brought their firstborn, a newborn, and the pediatrician picked up the baby and said, Now this is a beautiful baby. And the father, being just a little bit cynical, said, I, I bet you say that about all the babies. And the doctor said, No, I don't. I only say it about the ones of which it's true. And so then the father said, Well, then what do you say to the rest? of the parents. And he said, well, I either say, if it's true, this is a beautiful baby, or I simply look to the parents and say, this baby looks just like you. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm not saying what I'm about to say, uh, simply because it is our honor to be here, but because we have found this to be true. Mary and I want you to know, we've been honored to be here. You are such a wonderful and friendly gospel congregation. Uh, you love the Word of God, you love the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it has been a tremendous honor to be here. You are a beautiful church, and uh, we are just honored to be here. We're honored to be with your pastor. I, I love his heart, and as we spent time with him to get to know of his passion, uh, of his love for you as the people of this church, and his love for this uh, this mission place, as every church is located in a place of first mission, and then the influence of this church beyond It was an honor also to to be here with Lance Quinn and to hear him teach this morning. We are reminded of how good it is to have colleagues in the faith, and how sweet it is that we get to be together from time to time. And a lot of us just basically see each other when we're speaking in the same place, and that's all right, uh, because God's glory is in that as well. I want to invite you to turn with me to the first gospel, Matthew, the first gospel, chapter 22 we're going to be looking especially in Matthew chapter 22 at the conclusion of this chapter, especially beginning in verse 34. But before we get there, we're actually going to go back as far back as the latter sections of Matthew chapter 21. The reason for this is something of a, of a lesson in biblical exposition and biblical understanding. There are many opportunities, especially within the narrative flow of Scripture, in which you need to go backwards sufficiently in order to understand the dynamic of the context in which the focal passage of your concern takes place. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 and following, but in order to get there, as the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write this gospel, we need to back up and understand something of the dynamic of what is taking place. And the key transition here comes in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 45. Uh, For those who who love the Gospels, and in particular love the first Gospel, this is one of the most transitional verses, the most important transitional verses in the entire Gospel. Verse 45 of Matthew chapter 21, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was talking about them. That is an absolutely astounding verse. Uh, In other words, this the scribes and the Pharisees here, and in particular the chief priests and the Pharisees, heard the parables of Jesus, and eventually they all of a sudden caught on. Now, wait just a minute. He's talking about us. That's an absolutely astounding bit of self-knowledge. It's, it's one thing to, to hear the stories. It's another thing all of a sudden to realize, now, wait just a minute. The story's about us. And then things go from bad to worse. And although they were seeking to arrest him, so in other words, they came to arrest Jesus. They feared the crowds because the crowds, they held him to be a prophet. Now, one of the things we need to note about Jesus is that when Jesus faces opposition, when people don't like what he's doing, in every one of the Gospels, every time we are told that people don't like what Jesus is doing, Jesus does more of what he was doing. In Luke chapter 15, as Jesus is telling the parable of the the recurring cycle of lostness and foundness, we are told that he was telling these parables to people who were already angry at him. And the same thing is taking place here. The Pharisees and the chief priests have just figured out that the parables Jesus is telling, these parables are about them. And again, Matthew helps us to understand. So in the face of that, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, "...the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, "...tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, a few are chosen. The chief priests and the Pharisees had just figured out that Jesus' parables were about them. And in the face of that, Jesus says, well, uh, boys, listen closely because I got another. And in this one, it's clear that the first people for whom the wedding feast was given, the first invitees to what we will later see as the, as the marriage supper of the Lamb, the first invitees were not worthy. They refused to come. They had better things to do and Then Jesus tells the parable telling us that then the king opens the wedding feast to all and compels the servants to go out and bring them. And yet there's this one man who doesn't have on a wedding garment. If that that sounds like an inconsequential matter, it's it's the fact that he he isn't coming to the occasion, recognizing the occasion for what it is. And he's cast out. And again, the Pharisees and the chief priests must have understood, wait a minute, this is about us. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. Matthew helps us to understand this repeatedly, how the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the enemies of Jesus, continually try to set traps for Jesus. Here's a key issue in biblical hermeneutics. Don't ever set a trap for Jesus. It always ends up being a trap for you. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. uh, That again, Matthew's just helping us to understand. The Pharisees are now so intent on destroying Jesus, the chief priests are so intent upon destroying Jesus, that they will actually go into cahoots with the people who are their sworn enemies, the Herodians. Saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. That's, That's a lie. It's not a lie that he is a teacher who teaches the way of God truthfully. It's a lie that they thought that he was. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here is the trap. And they brought in the Herodians. And the Herodians were those who served, as you figured out, King Herod. And King Herod was the vassal king of Rome. He was serving Rome. And so it was King Herod's job to collect the taxes. It was an unfair and unjust tax against the very people of Israel. And now in the face of the public and in the face of the Herodians, he he then is asked, is it right to pay tribute to Caesar? And we'll just paraphrase Jesus' response. He basically says, give me a coin. And they gave him a coin and he said, whose picture's on it? And they said, Caesar's picture's on it. And Jesus says, and this is a paraphrase, this is the revised Molar version. Jesus says, if he likes it so much he puts his picture on it, give it back to him. Then he offers these very urgently important words. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Just a couple of things. This is not what the message is about this morning, but it sort of is. The theme of this conference is Christ and culture, and the very fact that we're talking about these as two separate things is an enormous Christian achievement. One of the things we recognize is that there is no other religious system on earth in which something like render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God's what is God's is said or affirmed or believed. Christianity from the very beginning, on the basis of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, understands a distinction between Caesar and church, between Christ and culture. And there are, there's an understanding that there is an obligation to both. But Jesus says, look, Caesar loves this coin so much, he puts his own likeness on it. If he likes it so much, if he has got his likeness on it, it belongs to him. If he demands it, give it back to him. But render unto God the things that are God's. Where is God's likeness? What does God care about so much that he stamped his likeness on it? Not a coin, but every single human being who has ever lived. They marveled. There are different ways of marveling. There's the marvel of appreciation. There's also the marvel of the slow burn of animosity, and that's where the Pharisees were. The Pharisees had tried to entrap Jesus. It did not work well up next are the Sadducees. Now, if you understand the Judaism of the first century, the Pharisees are the conservatives, and the Sadducees are the liberals. The Sadducees were theological liberals. They didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in everlasting life, uh, they didn't believe in angels. They were the demythologizers of the, uh, of the first century. They were the theological liberals of the first century. And so here you have the Pharisees who are the conservatives. They're opposed to Jesus. And now you have the, the Sadducees who are the liberals. The Pharisees were humiliated when they tried to entrap Jesus, and the Sadducees say, well, get out of the way. Let us have a chance. Doesn't go well. The same day Matthew is keen to give us this chronological context. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection... And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Oh my goodness. How would you like to be the seventh brother in this line? This is the Jewish practice which is in the law of leveret marriage, which was a way of making sure that widows were not left without any any care or protection. and was a way of making sure that a man who died could have his, his lineage continue even through his brother's faithfulness. The Sadducees are here making fun of the law, even as they're trying to entrap Jesus. And they come up with the seven brothers who have all had one wife because the first one died, and and it turns out she survived seven brothers. And in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, remember Matthew's already told us they don't believe in the resurrection, but they asked the question, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Jesus answered them, you are wrong. By the way, that's a short three-word answer, isn't it? You're wrong. Verse 29, you're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Remember, they don't believe in angels either. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. you're keeping score... Pharisees have been humiliated, now the Sadducees have been humiliated, but as you might expect, there's around three, and perhaps you're not surprised that up third is a lawyer. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, if that does not sound like a trap, it's because you're not a Jew of the first century. There are over 600 commandments in the law. The reality is that no human being can keep a conscious list and catalog of all those commandments at all times. And and constantly have them operationally in motion. It's impossible. Our our human consciousness is not adequate to be able to hold more than 600 commandments in constant consciousness. And and furthermore, given the way of, of the fallen world, some of these commandments sometimes appear to be at least in prioritized conflict with one another. They're not in direct conflict, but at least in terms of priority, you have to decide which commandment takes supremacy over all the rest. And beyond that, there's the huge interpretive question, how do you even know what some commandments are unless you understand a a preceding commandment that explains why this is important? The various groups of first-century Judaism differed over which was the greatest commandment. And when this lawyer, who is skilled in the law, Ask the question of Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? This was freighted. It was weighted with enormous political and theological weight. People are now going to be listening to say, what will Jesus say? What is the great commandment? And Jesus goes back to that first verse learned by every Jewish boy as he was taught by his father. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's an absolutely amazing statement. Not that you haven't heard it before. This is the Shema, found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, we hear, Hear O Israel the Lord thy God the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength that was the key verse of Israel's self identity the first verse that Israel was to know the verse that is still in- enclosed in the mezuzah on the doorpost of Orthodox Jewish homes, the first verse that a Jewish boy learns in the preparation for his bar mitzvah is still this central verse of Israel. Hear, O Israel: The Lord thy God, the Lord is one, and you shall love and love. No one loved Baal. No no, no one loved the idols of the Canaanites. No one loved the idols of Egypt. But Israel is called to love the one true and living God who is one. To love the Lord with heart and soul and strength. Jesus goes back to it. And as Jesus alone can do, he slightly modifies that commandment in a way that makes perfect sense, fitting this context. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Dear Sadducees and Pharisees and dear lawyer, if you loved God with your mind, we wouldn't be having this discussion because you're using your intellect to try to lay a trap for the Son of the living God. We are to love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul in your mind. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He was asked for the greatest commandment, but he doesn't give one, he gives two. He says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, here is the key to understanding all the law, all the more than 600 commandments. Here's how you understand the Old Testament. Here's how you understand Torah. Here's how you understand the law of Moses. The first and greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is the second. The first is the first and greatest commandment, but the second is necessary. It follows immediately. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, if the first commandment that Jesus mentions here, the one he says that is a first and greatest priority, the love of God with heart and soul and mind, if that is the first and greatest commandment, it's also one that immediately Israel will recognize. Because after all, that is that central verse that declares the very theological identity of Israel in the Old Testament. But what we need to note very carefully is that this second law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, was not considered one of the great laws of the Old Testament. It was considered an insignificant law. Jesus picks it up out of its insignificance in the book of Leviticus and says that it actually is a summary of the law second only to the love of God as love of neighbor. And if it might be expected that those who ask Jesus the question, what is the greatest commandment? You might expect that Jesus would go to Deuteronomy 6. No one would expect that he would say second to it and essential to understanding it and to applying it. Is this verse from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Two loves, love of God and love of neighbor. Christianity in terms of our understanding of the, of the relationship between Christ and culture, the relationship between the, the claims of Christ upon our souls and the claim of Christ upon our lives, including our political lives and our economic lives, our social lives. A distinction is found even here when Jesus is asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? He himself makes the distinction. Just on the same day that he made the distinction between Christ and Caesar, He makes the distinction between love of God and love of neighbor. But he says they go together. Interestingly, he says there is a matter of prioritization. It isn't the love of neighbor leads to love of God. It is exactly the opposite. It's the love of God leads to love of neighbor. And that goes back to that previous passage in which he said, Render unto God the things that are God's, every single human being made in God's likeness made. Imago Dei, the image of God. You meet no one in the family of humankind, who is not God's image-bearer, and thus is not your neighbor. This is a totally revolutionary theology. It's revolutionary in two ways. First of all, it's revolutionary because it makes love of neighbor absolutely derivative of love of God. It makes it follow naturally in such a way that Jesus would have us to know if we do not love our neighbor, we do not love God. But it's also revolutionary because the order is specific. It's that love of God leads to love of neighbor. We do not love God because we first love our neighbor. We love our neighbor because we first love God. And loving God, we love those who are his image bearers. We love our neighbor. This sets Christianity apart from every other major belief system because it affirms the priority of theism, the priority of the love of God, but it gets directly to a separate but essentially now dependent political, social, relational application in terms of love of neighbor. So there are two loves here in this passage, the love of God and the love of neighbor. One of the most important figures in church history was Augustine. I grew up in Florida. We had a town called St. Augustine, but uh, he would have pronounced his name as Augustine. He was a bishop in a city called Hippo, which is the Greek word for river, the city in North Africa, very close to Carthage. And in the late 4th century in the early 5th century, Augustine was the most important figure in the entire Christian church. During the Reformation, Luther and Calvin would cite Augustine more than any other source except the Scripture. They were both trying to make a very clear point, and that is that the arguments they were making were the very arguments that Augustine had made a thousand years before. Augustine was a faithful bishop of the church. He fought against the heresy known as Pelagianism, a heresy that keeps trying to creep back into evangelicalism at the very expense of the gospel. Augustine argued over against those who claimed that the fall of Rome was due to Christianity. They claimed that Christianity was falling, that that Rome was falling, because Christianity, through love of neighbor, had made her weak. Augustine wrote a great book entitled The City of God, and in that book he suggests that there actually is not just one city, there are two cities. There's the city of God and the city of man, and and those two cities are not equal because the city of man is a created city, And, and they're not equal because the city of man is a temporal city. It's a city that is passing. The city of God is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the city of God will never pass away. The city of God is eternal, and the city of God is where God is worshiped unconditionally and perfectly. We're headed for the city of God. But right now, we're living in the city of man. Augustine pointed out that even as here in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus speaks of two loves, those two cities are each driven by a love. The city of man is driven by love of man, And the city of God is driven by love of God. But that's where the church enters the picture, because the church, as we have stated over the last couple of nights, the church is, to use the biblical phrase, in the world but not of the world. The Apostle Paul would say our citizenship is in heaven, but when he is on trial, he will also make very clear he is a citizen of Rome. So in this life, we are actually citizens not of one city, but of two if we're saved. Those who are the redeemed, those who are Christians, are inhabitants and citizens of two cities simultaneously for a while. We're born into the city of man. By God's grace and by His sovereign love, we can be also made citizens of the city of God there's the already and not yet character we find in the New Testament. We're already there. Paul will already say that our citizenship is in heaven, but we're not living there yet. And and he will speak as the New Testament will speak about the fact that we are already bona fide citizens of a kingdom that already exists, but it isn't yet fully realized. Here's one of the biggest and hardest questions for Christians reading the New Testament. Why are we here now? Sure you've had that thought. Jesus in the first chapter of Acts ascends to the Father, and those two dressed in white said, "The Jesus, this same Jesus whom you saw ascend to heaven will come again." Why not yet? Haven't you had that thought? This is the year 2014, the way we count it. That's heading on 2,000 years after Jesus ascended to the Father. The last verse of the Bible is that prayer, we are always to pray, even so, Lord, come quickly. But He hasn't come yet. Why? Christians were already asking that question at the end of the first century. They've asked that question over and over again. Augustine pondered that question. Why? And and it comes very clear in the New Testament itself that the waiting is for witnessing. That, That the delay of Christ coming back is so that the gospel will be proclaimed in this age. And also so that the glory of God will be demonstrated in his people living even in the midst of this fallen world. God right now is bringing glory to himself by the existence of a faithful church even in the midst of an unfaithful age. And the church is given a responsibility in this age. It's a responsibility of witness. And that means first and foremost, that articulated, spoken witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that sinners may hear and hearing may believe and believing may be saved. But there's also merely the witness of being a people of truth in the midst of an age of darkness, of being a little emissary of the city of God, in the middle of the city of man. That's what Anchorage Grace Church is. You're a little preview of the city of God right here in the middle of the city of man. Every single gospel church is that. It's a a picture of what's about to happen. And it's already happening, in a sense, among you. It's already happening among the church that already, but not yet, is already here. These two cities are driven by two loves. And the two cities are distinct. This is something that's very, very important. We we can't collapse the two. We can't say that the city of man and the city of God are the same thing. If so, then we're going to have to try to establish a theocracy. Right? If the city of God and the city of man are the same city, then, then we can't rest until the city of man has the entirety of the priorities and the laws and the principles and the dictates of the city of God. The problem is that the people who are inhabiting the city of man aren't even uniformly claiming any obedience to God. We, we, we have a problem. The, you, you, we can't confuse the two. To confuse the two is, is, is to try to make the culture a church. And every time the Christian church has made that attempt, it has failed miserably at the cost of the gospel. But the other problem is that we also can't say that we have no concern for the city of man. Because clearly, Christ says that the first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, is not fulfilled until we love our neighbor as ourselves. And our neighbors are living in the city of man with us. And thus we have concern for the city of man because God also made this city. It belongs to Him because He has made it. He is its creator. As we heard earlier from Colossians chapter 1, Christ is preeminent in this city, even as there are those who do not yet recognize His preeminence. So what is the responsibility of the church to the city of man? Augustine said, it all comes down to the second commandment. We are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. What does that mean? Well, it's one of the first verses we learn as children, isn't it, in Sunday school or vacation Bible school? It's, it's a You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we're often told that this is the golden rule. And we're often told that this is found in some form in virtually every civilization and every belief system. And thanks be to God, it is. That's a testimony of God's common grace, that, that at least some residue of, uh, of the knowledge of the one true and living God is found amongst most people so they at least know they ought to do this. The problem is that if you try to secularize this and, and take love of Neighbor out so that it's no longer derivative of love of God. It turns out people aren't very good at loving their neighbor unless they know the neighbor is made in God's image. And unless they believe that their love of neighbor is a part of their rightful obedience to the one true and living God. What does this say about how we are to relate to the culture around us? Well, it says something very profound, and that is that we are to see the very existence of the culture around us as a great challenge to Christian faithfulness. A great test as to whether or not we actually do love God and love our neighbor. A great test as to whether or not we are willing to make that faithfulness to the God whom we love evident in the love of neighbors around us. What would love of neighbor require of us? Well, first and foremost, it would require of us the truth. We would understand that the the waiting for the return of Christ is, is first and foremost in terms of priority for the witnessing. And that if the church doesn't do anything else, the church's first responsibility is to be those who take the gospel to the ends of the earth, those who share the gospel with everyone we know, those who try to seize every opportunity as a gospel opportunity, knowing that the time is short and the urgency is unspeakable. But it's not just witnessing in terms of the articulation of the gospel, which is the first priority. It is also the witnessing by the church being the church as a a vestige, as a picture, as a preview of the kingdom that is yet coming. It also means that we have a responsibility in this age and in this world, in this city, to work for what we would describe as human flourishing, In other words, if we know that every single person we meet is someone made in God's image, then we would want flourishing to take place. Christians should be committed to human flourishing. We should be committed to those things that will make people flourish. And why is that? Because we want people to flourish in and of themselves? Well, that's not wrong. It's just that's not enough. We want human beings to flourish because a Creator made them to flourish. So to look at some of the most specific and difficult issues of our day... If we are committed to human flourishing because of love of God and love of neighbor, one of the first things we would have to do is to advocate for the sanctity and dignity of every single human life at every stage of development, knowing that every single human being who comes to life because God says, let there be life, is worthy not only of our respect but of our protection. Thus, we would committed to love of God and love of neighbor be those who may be the very last to speak for our unborn neighbors, to say, we stand with them too. We do not stand for the sanctity of human life as a merely political statement, although it is inescapably political, but because long before it's political, it is theological. Because God made every single human being at every single point of development in His image. And his will is for that life to flourish. That means also not only now with the challenges to the sanctity of life at the beginning of life, but also the challenges to the sanctity of life at the end of life, we would have to say that we oppose the very notion of euthanasia or the idea of a good death, the idea that we can be the Lord and master of our own death, that, that, that humanity will be better off if we simply accelerate the the death of those who become a financial or relational burden upon us, we will recognize that that, too, is a denial of what it means for every single human being to be made in God's image, and that every single human being at every point of natural life is to be respected and that life is to be defended. We're living in a world in which, in much of secular Europe, The the movement towards assisted suicide or euthanasia has reached the point that in the nation of Belgium, legislation was recently passed to allow for children and young adolescents to demand assisted suicide. And then you recognize that makes sense to someone, but it can make sense to no one who loves God with heart and soul and mind and loves our neighbor as ourselves. If because of love of God and love of neighbor, we are committed to human flourishing, then we must also be the advocates for those structures that God has given us by His grace in His act of creation that lead to human flourishing. And the first of those is marriage coming so soon that in the entire narrative of creation, it comes by the end of chapter 2. And it's even already explicit in chapter 1, where in in chapter 1, when the dominion is given, it is given to the man and the woman together. And by the time you end chapter 2, therefore the man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked in the garden and were unashamed. One of the most resolute principles of human history and human life is that where marriage is respected and protected and dignified, human flourishing happens. And where marriage is insulted or subverted or destroyed, human flourishing is inescapably and tragically hampered. Now, there is common grace affirmation of this at virtually every hand. If you look at the poverty statistics in the United States, there are very, very few people who are in a situation of poverty in which the home situation is a mother and father married to each other with their children living with them. It isn't impossible, but it's extremely rare. Poverty in America is largely a poverty caused by the absence of marriage and the fracturing of the family. It's considered politically incorrect to say that, but there is no way that biblical Christians can avoid dealing with that. We do recognize that we're living in a social system in which many people are born into this. They did not ask for this. We also understand that there are systemic uh, factors of, of, of injustice that have produced at least a part of this picture, and we need to acknowledge that. But we have to be the people who say the human flourishing happens where God's structures of creation are honored, and however we must get there, we must get there. And when we consider the current challenge of same-sex marriage, evangelical Christians have a lot to answer for. Because it was American Christians who acquiesced to a culture of easy divorce that set the stage for this. If the Christian church had maintained its biblical understanding when it came to the issue of divorce, it would have been impossible for the notion of this radical transformation of marriage to take place. And at the end of the day, It will certainly be true that divorce will have caused far more direct harm to children and others than same sex marriage. Far more pervasive, far more devastating, and addressed directly in Scripture. The sexual revolution, we now recognize our inadequate response to that. Not that we weren't saying the right things, but that we weren't speaking with the right strategic urgency where it most mattered and we weren't exercising church discipline, where it would have made a visible sign both to the church and to the world, our failure to deal with the earlier aspects of the sexual revolution set the seeds for what we are now inheriting. As the Scripture says, you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. But our concern for something like the legislative and legal definition of marriage is not because we are legal fundamentalists who believe that the law simply must be this because it has always been this. Rather, we are Christians who believe that God made human beings in His image and created the structures that will lead to human flourishing, and the denial and destruction and fracturing and redefinition of those structures will lead not to human flourishing, but to profound human misery and hurt. Love of neighbor, because we love God and a commitment to human flourishing would mean that we would seek that every single human being we'll ever meet would be the most productive industrious the most the most well educated and developed and flourishing person one can be in order to show the glory of God but we also know that as committed as we are to human flourishing human flourishing isn't enough Because at the end of the day, all that human flourishing will burn, and all that will remain is the city of God. That's almost the way we would put it, isn't it? Except the Bible tells us there's a dual destiny on the other side of that great day of judgment. There is both heaven and hell. And the reality is that in that age, we will not be talking about the city of God and the city of man, we'll be talking about the city of God and God's wrath being poured out upon all flesh, those who have not come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So at the end of the day, we have to keep the church's priorities right. We understand that we are accountable for our citizenship in this life and in this world and in this nation. It is one of the greatest privileges of our lives that by God's grace and in his providence we were born into this particular nation, and even at this particular moment. And it is not by accident. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, then God sovereignly, even as the apostle Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, he has appointed this for his glory. He's appointed us to live in this society at this time to show his glory in a unique way. Because we love God, we love our neighbor, and we're committed to human flourishing, and thus we can't separate ourselves from all these cultural issues as much as we would like to. There's no place of refuge. There's, there's, there's no place of safety. It, because if we love God, we can't retreat. If, if we love God, we cannot fail to speak toward the things that we believe will lead to the flourishing of God's creatures. And we can't speak against those things that we believe will lead to the injury of God's creatures, those made in God's own image. And we're not doing so because we have a superior political philosophy. We're not doing so because Christians have a a superior intellect. We're not doing it because we're morally superior, but because we're saved by grace and we have the Word of God that doesn't err. Our wisdom isn't ours, it's a wisdom from on high. There's an inescapable political dimension to this. There's no way around it. It was true in the first century, it's true now. Christ's church doesn't wear a partisan badge but at times there's no way to avoid the fact that there is One candidate who more rightly stands for those things that lead to human flourishing and righteousness than some other candidate. And if you look just most recently at the uh, political parties undertaken in in 2012, the platforms by the parties, on the issue of same-sex marriage, you had one party who said it must not happen, and the other party says it must happen everywhere. On the issue of the sanctity of human life, you had one party that said we stand for the sanctity of human life at every point of human development. And the other one who said not only must abortion be legal, but there should be taxpayer money to pay for it. but just wait. Given enough time, the tables may well turn. And one of the things to watch very clearly is what happens when a political party, any political party, decides it has to survive in a changing moral climate. Just wait. But understand this, we have a political responsibility because we're citizens, not by accident, but by God's sovereignty, in the city of man. But we're not here this morning because of love for the city of man. We're here this morning because of the fact that by God's grace we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light. And we're here because we already are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we need to band together in this age as often as we can to remind ourselves of what what it means for us to be Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ's blood-bought church. We come to understand that we're going to face many difficult questions. That's not new. The church has faced difficult questions, political questions, economic questions, sociological questions, cultural questions. The church has faced difficult questions. But the church, after all, isn't to answer this as individual Christians, as if we're each just set loose trying to figure out these things on our own, but rather the church together seeking the wisdom of Christ. In the sixteenth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, Upon this rock, the rock of the confession that Peter had made, thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Rightly translated, what Jesus said is whatever you loose on heaven shall have been loosed, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. We're bound and loose by the Word of God, but we're bound and loose together. God didn't, 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 through Christ, give those keys to us individually, but to the church in order that through the process of biblical discernment and by the central act of expository preaching and by the responsibility of church discipline in the life of the church together, we would learn how rightly to discern the answer to these questions and be faithful to Christ. And there is in the background of this the urgency of evangelism the urgency of missions, because it isn't enough to advocate for human flourishing. We do not merely want those who are around us to flourish. We want them to know the forgiveness of sins and the gift of everlasting life. We want them not only to be our neighbors in this world, but our neighbors sitting beside us in the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is yet to come. Jesus was facing those who three times on one day had set a trap. But Jesus doesn't leave His church a trap. He leaves the church a truth. That The first commandment is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. And the second is likened to it, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. On these two commandments hang all the law. And the prophets. What are we to do with this? In closing, I ask you to turn with me to 1 Peter. There is so much that we're simply going to have to acknowledge comes before the passage we're going to read together. But we're going to begin at verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Christ, speaking through the apostle Peter to his church, declares, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look closely at verses 11 and following. How do we live in this world? Hear the word of God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, in conclusion, how do we live in this age? How do we demonstrate love of God and love of neighbor? Well, we see ourselves in this age as sojourners and exiles. We're here, but this is not yet our home. And we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, that is, from immorality, which wage war against our soul. But then look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That means the entire world. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In all likelihood, you've already been called something not nice by your neighbors. As a matter of fact, those whose flourishing we are committed to seek often claim that the very beliefs that we hold are not loving but unloving. Unloving that require a judgment that they will reject. We're living in the midst of a society that says, give me what I want because I know what's good for me. And it puts us in a very difficult position to say, no, it's not good for you. And insofar as I have influence, I can't give you even what you demand. It's not because I don't love you, but because I do. But again, we're not new to this. The church was here in the first century. And that's the logic of this verse. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, hate speech, intolerant, unloving, they may in actuality see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. that is, on that day of judgment. So, brothers and sisters, how do we live? We live as citizens, not of one city, but of two until Christ comes to claim His church, or we go to be with Him. We love our neighbor in this city because we first love God, and because we are able to love our neighbors because we have been made citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we advocate for those things that lead to human flourishing because we care for our brothers and sisters. We also care for our neighbors. And yet, at the end of the day, we have to run the risk that Evil things will be said about us when we intend good. So flee immorality and live honorably as sojourners and exiles, so that even when a fallen world speaks ill of us, they accidentally bring glory to God, such that even on the day of judgment, they will glorify God. For the fact that there were people, even in this age, who love them because they first love God. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for all that You've given us in Your Word. May we learn to be a people of truth and a people of love who know that we can never have truth without love nor love without truth. Father, we pray for Your wisdom to be faithful citizens in the city of man as we're called ultimately to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven and of Your city, Father, we pray as the Lord instructed us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May that be our prayer. To the glory of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.